at this general convention gathering, people spend thousands and thousands of dollars to be there, and it is very, like, showy, and it's, like, at once the worst and best of the church, I think. It's, like, its greatest opulence, its greatest concentration of hierarchy and power, and then at the same time, this place where you can connect with other people that you would never meet before. So that seems to be my life, is, like, holding those things in tension. (laughs) That's Grace Ahern. She's a member of the Episcopal Church and lives in a small, intentional Christian community in Virginia. Still, she grapples with her role inside the larger church. We'll hear more from her later in the episode. But first, let's meet a woman living 150 years earlier who had her own tense relationship with an institution, the Confederacy. Our story begins at Richmond's St. John's Church, where a prominent local family is gathered for a baptism. The Episcopal Church is a modest structure, wood-framed and white, with a commanding steeple that overlooks the city from on high. Even in 1846, it was more than a century old. It gave its name to the neighborhood, Church Hill, and hosted two revolutionary conventions during the War for Independence. George Wythe, who signed the Declaration of Independence, is buried in the courtyard. And in 1775, Patrick Henry had shouted, Give me liberty or give me death from its pulpit. Now, on May 17, 1846, the widow Eliza Baker Van Loo and her daughter Elizabeth have presented five-year-old Mary Jane for the sacred Christian rite. The Van Loo mansion stood just across the street, fruit of the late Mr. Van Loo's hardware business. Mary, too, was the fruit of that business, another piece of property owned by the prosperous family. Although if John Van Loo had been alive today, to see them bring this girl into St. John's, well, no matter. He was gone now. And with the two Van Loo women looking on, the priest touched Mary Jane with water. I'm Brendan Wolfe, editor of Encyclopedia of Virginia at Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. On this episode of Not Even Past, we meet Elizabeth Van Loo and Mary Richards Bowser, two of the most mysterious women to have walked the streets of Virginia's capital. Elizabeth Van Loo was born in Richmond in 1818. Her father was a New Yorker, her mother from Philadelphia. The two had married at St. John's, and after the hardware store helped supply construction of the University of Virginia, the family built their mansion on East Grace Street. This is where young Elizabeth grew up. Through wealth, proper conduct, and an investment in slaves, the Van Loos had insinuated themselves into Richmond society, making respectable places like St. John's Episcopal Church their own. So it's interesting that lurking not too far in the past were some rather impolitic relatives, or at least there was one, Van Loo's maternal grandfather, Hillary Baker. He was an accomplished man, the mayor of Philadelphia, a delegate to Pennsylvania's Constitutional Convention. But he also was one of the first members of the pioneering Pennsylvania Abolition Society, whose president was Benjamin Franklin. So it seems significant that young Elizabeth Van Loo was educated not in Richmond, but instead in bustling reformist Philadelphia, home to the Abolition Society and the Anti-Slavery Society, too. It would have been shocking had Van Loo not been exposed to anti-slavery activity. 
Rumor has it that even one of her governesses was an abolitionist. If she'd remained in Richmond, Van Loo might have found herself more deeply bound to Richmond society, to the Southern way of life. But she went to Philadelphia instead, and Van Loo was considered an excellent student. All this while, though, the Van Loo's owned slaves. When John Van Loo died in 1843, he left a will that stipulated those slaves not be freed. He knew his family, apparently. Because as it happens, that's exactly what Elizabeth and her mother seemed inclined to do. Over the next nearly 20 years, tiptoeing around the will and state law, they did everything but. They hired their enslaved men and women out to decent jobs. They found them decent places to live. And in one particular case, they provided an education. That enslaved girl's name was Mary Jane. She was born around 1841, and in 1846, she was baptized at nearby St. John's Church. While it was not unheard of for a slave to be baptized in a church, it was extremely rare for this to happen in a white church, and especially a church as hoity-toity as St. John's. Already, we can see the Van Loo's, absent perhaps the more conventional father, bucking the system. Then, a few years after the baptism, the Van Loo's sent Mary Jane north to be educated. What made this particularly unusual is that Virginia law specifically prohibited any African American who left the state to be educated from returning. White Virginians believed that by teaching slaves to spell or to read the Episcopal Catechism, they would only reap the whirlwind. The Nat Turner Uprising of 1831 was all the proof anyone needed of that. So this was a big deal sending Mary Jane to be educated. And it was a big deal that she slipped quietly back into Virginia to put that education to use. It should be said that first, young Mary Jane sailed to Africa, where she lived briefly in Liberia. The colony didn't impress her, however, and Elizabeth Van Loo arranged for her return to Richmond. She arrived in 1860, The hotly contested presidential election preoccupied the white elite. Talk of secession had begun. And yet the illegal return of an educated slave did not escape the notice of Richmond authorities. The Richmond Whig newspaper reported that Mary Jones, alias Mary Jane Henley, alias Henry, alias Mary Jane Richards, had been committed to the jail for nine days, after which Elizabeth Van Loo was issued a summons for permitting her slave to go at large. The paper commented more than once on Mary Jane's quality education, and the articles implied that she was beginning to develop spycraft. Her use of false names, her willingness to risk arrest in eluding the law, and her ability to safely come in from out of the cold— or at least find support from the Van Loo women on East Grace Street. Then, on April 16, 1861, Mary Jane crossed the street to St. John's Church again, this time to marry another of the Van Loo slaves, a man named Bowser. The very next day, the Virginia Convention, meeting down on Capitol Square, voted to leave the Union. The Civil War was a time when many lesser-known people stood up, stood out, shined even. Ulysses Grant and Robert E. Lee became heroes. Even Belle Boyd, the Confederate spy from Winchester, loved seeing her name in the papers. 
But Elizabeth Van Lu and Mary Jane were different. They slipped into the shadows. They knew the elite white world of St. John's and the Episcopal Church. They understood how to move in those circles, and they used that knowledge to collect information for Union forces during the war. Even a century and a half later, their methods remained somewhat obscure. It does seem as if Elizabeth Van Lu helped place Mary Jane as a servant in the Confederate White House, waiting on the family of President Jefferson Davis. Mary Jane likely cleaned, cooked, served, and ran errands, all the while listening for whatever bits of military and political intelligence might prove useful. Then she ran back to East Grace Street to report. In a diary entry dated May 14, 1864, Elizabeth Van Lu wrote, When I open my eyes in the morning, I say to the servant, What news, Mary? And she never fails. Although it's not as if Van Lu herself was not taking risks. In fact, by 1864, she had positioned herself at the head of a whole network of spies in the Confederate capital. Codenamed Babcock, Elizabeth Van Lu was always meticulous. She tore important messages into pieces and transported them by multiple couriers and through various relay stations. She also hid messages in the soles of her shoes and the shells of eggs. Eventually, she developed her own cipher. Still, Van Lu's anti-slavery politics were no secret. They had always made her suspect. It was something she actually turned to her advantage by exploiting people's belief that her unionism was merely a symptom of her mental instability. Supposedly nicknamed Crazy Bet, she is said to have wandered Richmond in shabby clothes, muttering to herself or singing nonsense songs. Is this how she managed, along with Mary Jane, to help some of the 109 Union officers who escaped Libby Prison in the spring of 1864 by acting crazy? The historian Elizabeth Varon is skeptical. To remember Van Lu as crazy bet is misleading, counterproductive, and indeed unjust, she's written. She argues that Van Lu did her best to maintain a facade as a loyal Confederate, exploiting instead people's belief that a Southern lady would never spy for the North. In the end, Varon writes, the crazy bet stories failed to credit Van Lu's intelligence and meticulousness. Indeed, that may have been their point. Immediately after the war, Mary Jane toured the North, giving speeches under yet more assumed names, including my favorite, Richmonia R. St. Pierre. She described Union soldiers as having been rude after the fall of Richmond, and she tartly accused Northern blacks of being more concerned with fashion and social status than education. She herself founded a freedman's school in Georgia, but then, after a couple of years, she disappeared from the historical record. She disappeared as surely as she had learned to disappear during the war years. Mary J. Richards Bowser, forever hiding in the shadows. As for Elizabeth Van Lu, she stayed in the mansion on East Grace Street, but she lived as a pariah, hated by Richmond society and feared even by young children. Today, the big house is gone, replaced, fittingly, I think, by a school. St. John's Church, though, still stands. It's a modest, white-painted structure that famously hosted two revolutionary conventions during the War for Independence, and, on a spring day in 1846 that has not been quite as widely noted, the baptism of a five-year-old enslaved girl. 
Like Elizabeth Van Lu, Grace Ahern, who we heard at the beginning of the show, is thinking creatively about how to work within the church to affect the change she wants to see. She's a resident of an Episcopal church-sponsored community just outside of Charlottesville, Virginia. They're young people living together with a shared sense of mission. Not even past producer Miranda Bennett went to Grace Church Red Hill to meet her and hear more. Most people's stereotypes of the Episcopal Church are that it's the most philanthropic Protestant denomination, but also one of the wealthiest, and we own so much property. And I kind of have this dream of just just like inserting the idea into the church. What if we just gave all of the land back to indigenous people? You know what? This ship is sinking. You have three people that worship here on Sunday and you're paying property taxes. What if we just figured out a sustainable way to like give land back to folks whose histories we have a history of erasing? Just You don't have to do it, but just think about it. And I think people would be resistant because that's a painful thing to give up power. But like, I think that they would listen. And they would listen right now. It feels different than 10 years ago. Yeah. Oh, totally. Listening to a 26-year-old who's queer, biracial, definitely would not have been listened to 10 years ago. Did you grow up in the Episcopal Church? Yeah, I did. Um, I was baptized and raised in a church in Roanoke, Virginia, that my grandparents helped found and build, which is this sweet, humble parish in Roanoke, in North Roanoke. And I never had a lot of Christian baggage that a lot of people in my generation have. For most of my life, my pastor was a woman, and not just a woman, but like a very anti-capitalist, radical woman. Um, And then our organists have always been either like radical feminists with gay children or gay men. Um, So I just was raised in this church that, you know, was not putting on those kind of ugly stereotypes that a lot of people have to recover from in Christianity. It was a church that my parents came home to in the 70s, um, you know, eight years after Loving vs. Virginia as an interracial couple where they felt safe and welcomed. And there were other interracial couples there as well. So um, that kind of primed me for in my teenage years, like, yeah, church is great. Nobody hurt me here. And I feel really welcomed and loved. When did you realize that your experience in the Episcopal Church was not typical? I think in my friend group specifically, a lot of people are at odds with the church because they have been deeply wounded by the church, especially folks in the queer community or folks who are just working in activist circles and who have seen the church be really complacent around um, yeah, issues of justice and human suffering despite claiming to follow the Prince of Peace. Maybe my realization that the Episcopal Church was an institution steeped in colonization came at the same time that I realized that about every institution that I'm a part of in college, you know, when you're like learning about neoliberalism and uh, whiteness and you're like, well, damn, like we're swimming in it, can't (laughs) really get out of it. Um, And, you know, it wasn't like the bottom falling out, Um, but more like, wow, it's a lot of white liberals really trying to do their best um, and messing up sometimes and trying to figure out what to do with a lot of power. I wonder if you can talk about a particular situation or a moment, something that made you question being part of the, the institution. The first thing that comes to mind is more of a, like, I experienced a different way to be a Christian outside of an institution that felt really appealing. At some point um, after college, maybe like 2013, 2014, I um, started 
just kind of through friends getting involved and invited to the this network called Radical Discipleship. And it was this network of rogue Mennonites and Catholic workers. And it was just experiencing that community of people who are not affiliated at all to a religious organization and not beholden to power structures or beholden to much really beyond God and their interpretation of Jesus's radical call in the world where I was just like, well, dang, like I could forget, you know, having to bring along this institution and reconcile all the contradictions and just live in community together and have community gardens, serve the poor. That was really appealing to me. And I'm still deeply involved in those communities. Um, And I think that's kind of something that keeps me from you know, getting too deep into the institution and getting too comfortable. And that's helped her hold on to the role of agitator within the strict rules of the church. I was raised in a, in a way of thinking about church that, that says, like, you don't get to do what you want all the time. Um, and whether you like that or not, um, there's something really appealing to me about we are collectively agreeing that we are going to hold each other accountable um, in the way that we, in the words we use, in the way that we worship. And then on the other hand, being accountable to people who are in a less socially powerful place is probably the move that I've made. I want to be accountable to people of color and differently abled people and low-income people in this community and do right by them as I stay in relationship with and walk the way with folks who have as much privilege as I do. You saw a community that was outside of the Episcopal Church and or issues that were maybe were not being addressed by the Episcopal Church and were trying to bring them in, knowing both worlds pretty well. Maybe you could talk about some of the ways that you are trying to to you know communicate. Living in the community that I'm at right now is the biggest way. It's called charis, um, which means grace in Greek. I didn't name it after myself. The church that we're affiliated is called Grace Church. We are five people living together, young people, mostly Christian identified, who have this vision of like what we, not only what we want church to be, but what we want the world to look like. And we have eight acres where we can try to treat each other, experiment and learn things in a way that trues up with that shared sense of um, mission. And maybe people will find that compelling and interesting. I've really appreciated how this church has never treated us as like, oh, look at those young people doing their cute thing. Like we've um, been taken seriously and two of us sit on the vestry, which is the like governing board of the church and have as much say and vote in anything as anyone. And they've just been super supportive of a lot of the things that we've tried to do. Like, for example, when we were really involved in the stuff happening in Charlottesville this summer and... Um, one day in church, I stood up and I was like, I know not all of you are going to be on the streets this day, but we have a lot of guests coming and staying at our house. I know some of you don't even really agree with the way that I personally am engaging with this racial justice work, but if you could support us in doing that, we could use food and money to buy groceries for people. And like, sure enough, half a dozen people showed up with chili and bread and chips. Yeah, it's been awesome. Like, I know they don't all agree with everything that we're saying or doing. We haven't convinced them to divest from Wells Fargo yet, but we're getting there. One last thing I want to ask you is how do you envision your future in the Episcopal Church? 
I, I pray that we're on the brink of this institution really reckoning with its power. And that gives me a lot of hope um, when there are so many urgent needs. People are willing to be flexible and um, open to new ideas. And I'm excited to both work with the tradition and hear about what's, what's happened in the past and then also offer my new ideas and just get to be me. To learn more about Elizabeth Van Loo and Mary Richards Bowser, visit encyclopediavirginia.org. Not Even Past is a member of the Teej.fm podcast network. Find out more at teej.fm. This podcast is produced by Miranda Bennett.